The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Are you ready? It's your time! From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's the Boston Podcast with David Yaz and a rotating cast of characters from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. This is our DC. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Boston Podcast at pod617.com. We produce the show right here in our Westwood studios. If you want your own podcast, by the way, go to the website, pod617.com. My name is Dave, and uh, hello to everyone, uh, children of all ages, all the ships at sea, lovers, muggers, and thieves. I've changed my intro like every time I do the show. My guest today, awesome, awesome guest. Laura Gastner Odding, did I say that correctly? You did. Close enough. Okay, Laura is here. Welcome to the show. I just learned, first of all, before she, all right, easy, easy capacity crowd. I just learned before we started the show that Laura has done about 130 podcast interviews already because she's an accomplished author. And um, so I feel a little bit of pressure because when you're number 128, it's probably going to be hard for me to do something different, right? Well, way to set me up to fail. People no, are expecting big things now. No, it's it's been setting me up to fail. Uh, I, you know, I think you, you're off to a tremendous start, and I'm flailing. So, but but but, but maybe it'll uh, cheer me up a little bit to mention our sponsors, which I am obligated to do, and uh, and I'm delighted to do it to mention our uh, sponsor, the U.S. Postal Service. Second largest employer in the United States offering paid training and ways to move up. Apply today. USPS.com slash careers. U.S. Postal Service deliver for the nation. Um, so Laura has written a book. She's written a couple books, actually, but she's written a, a big a hit book called Limitless. How to ignore everybody, carve your own path, and live your best life. So people, you got to stay tuned to this, the the, the full uh, run of this, this podcast, because um, I want to know how to ignore everybody. I, I struggle with that. And um, th- so that sounds super bold and to cut to the chase. It's, it sounds almost like an F you book, like F everybody and go do your own thing. Right. Well, the book was originally called Purpose, Doing Work That Matters. And okay. we decided that nobody was going to buy that book because who the hell cares? Well, that's but, yeah. What people want to know is they want to know, like, like, I know that I'm meant for something more. Right. Like, is this really all my life is going to be? We all have this one big, juicy time on this planet. So. What's stopping us from being amazing? It's all the other people around us and all of their decisions about what we should be and what we have to be and who we can be and what we, God forbid, can't be. And I was so sick of everybody being limited by everyone else's ideas about all those things that I decided I would just tell people what I needed to hear when I was younger and wish I had had this book. I think you chose the right uh, title. The the purpose, uh, what, what, what did you say? The purpose, original? purpose. Doing yeah. work that matters. Doing work that matters. It sounds good. It sounds, I don't know, the word purpose sounds a little maybe religious-y to me. Like, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I would have Yeah, I and the problem with purpose yeah. is that, like, we get it wrong because we have this idea that it has to be, like, higher purpose or lofty purpose. And when I was writing this book, I actually looked up the definition of purpose in the dictionary, and it turns out that the definition of purpose is the reason for which something is done. And I just wanted people to know that if the reason that you're working is to cure cancer, awesome. But if the reason that you're working is to buy a Maserati in a beach house, if that's your purpose, that's awesome too. Like I'm just, I'm not going to You get to a, pick your own purpose. Yeah. Like yeah. And I think we have to stop purpose shaming everybody. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I'm going to look up the definition of purpose right now. Here it is. It's a, a small sea creature similar to a dolphin. No, I've got the wrong <laughs> one. I've got the wrong one. Before we go any further, we need to spend about five minutes putting Lara in the Boston vault as we do with all of our guests. Um, don't worry, Lara. These armed guards are here for your protection. You will... Uh, I understand the ventilation in the vault is is adequate. There's a lot of metal moving here. There's one more door. Here it comes. Right about there. Okay. All right. Okay, we get it. She's in the vault. So you grew up in Miami, as I understand it. I sure did. Okay, so what's the big, uh, what's the biggest difference in culture between? But you've been here for twenty something years. I have been. So you're, so you're okay. So that's why you're. Um, we we wave you in. We 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 you know we on New Englanders will uh, will accept you at this point. It's been a long it's been a long time. So um, difference in cultures. Okay, so here's the biggest difference in culture. Uh, in Boston, people read books. <laughs> but, but, which like, is why you're here, which yeah. is good. Yeah. So like, here's the thing. Like, I think every 
every city has its own currency, right? So like in Miami, it's like how big is your boat and who does your plastic surgery and what fashionable designer are you wearing? And I feel like in Boston, it's like, well, what are you reading and where did you go to school and where do you summer? Like we... In Boston, they use seasons as verbs. Right? Like, yeah. Where do you summer? Where yeah. do you winter? Yeah. In Miami, you go there and you ask somebody what book they've just read and they look at you like you're crazy. Yep. And I love Miami. I love it. I am of Miami. I'm part of like the spicy mix of you know all the cultures being all over each other in Miami. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, I go home to visit and I feel like the ugliest, pastiest, fattest, most disgusting <laughs> genius you've ever met in your life. Right? That's so what, just, yeah, the New England has rubbed off on you. That's good. All you need to do now is be a little bit bitter in Berlin. Exactly. Well, a little bit bitter here. If you see me in the middle of my birthday is February 15, and my my deal with my husband is that I will live in this godforsaken, you know, ice, you know, icy hoth of a, of a place only if we spend uh, President's Day weekend every year with my toes somewhere in sand, and it can't be like Cape Cod. It has to be like somewhere warm in sand. I just, I am very bitter in February and March, and especially April. Yeah. April's just cruel. It's yeah, yeah, terrible. Is that the one that comes in like a lamb and goes out like a lion? All I, I know is it's that. dark and rainy yeah. and sad. Yeah, it's um, the great thing about New England weather is there's always something to complain about. Like it's 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 never quite perfect. Well, you know, I believe so. you can actually only complain about one season, and you you pick your season. Okay, but you can complain every single day about this that season. So I pick winter. Like I yeah. will never complain that it's too hot or too humid or too whatever. But boy. Winter, winter is tough. I can, I can, I'm, I can live with the cold most of the time. What I hate is when the snow literally changes your day. Like, well, I was gonna drive out to Worcester and forget it. Look at this, you know, I forget it. Look, it's, it's gonna be wicked bad out there. You know, uh, the, the word treacherous. You probably don't hear that word a lot in my Miami, but now it's usually in drug deals. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all have our uh, burdens, I guess. So. Um, yeah, I hate winter also, for, for, for the most part. If you're going to complain, well, that I'm with you. What, when was the first time you saw snow? Oh, so I grew. I was born in New York, and oh, uh, right. I used to go back and visit my family, and I have a, uh, a a picture of me and my sister, and we're wearing, like, matching winter coats and our Miami Dolphins, you know, like, like the tube sock hats. Remember mm-hmm. those have pom-poms? Of course, And we're yeah. standing there with, like, giant gray, nasty, like, brown slushy snow in our arms because we're so excited. Like, we thought that was awesome. <laughs> like, it, it was disgusting. But, of course, we thought that was awesome snow, so we're sitting there with our giant snow. That was probably, like, six. It's funny you say that because I wrote in high school, I uh, was very proud of myself, I wrote I wrote poetry. It might not was part of my class. I wasn't just writing poetry on my own, but, I, but it was a creative writing class, and I wanted to write a poem about how it's kind of sad when the snow turns brown. That wasn't the name of the poem. The name of the poem was Man's plague for some reason but it was like nature's gift meets man like it sounds so horrible and hackneyed but uh but i have a whole other podcast yeah i know but like it's uh when um i could but my favorite line was i described the snow as brown sugar because when when it hits when the certain level of mud hits the snow it does actually resemble brown sugar i was so proud of myself and um then they published my poem in like the school magazine and they misspelled my name. Now, my last name is three letters. Three letters! Y-A-S. And I open up the book. It's all published. And it's like, a, you know, a nice, everyone's getting the, the, the book, magazine, whatever it is. And it says David Lass, L-A-S. And um, I, I was, I was uh, crestfallen. That is you know? so heartbreaking. When and I was my, on the uh, yeah. Today Show, uh, Jenna Bush Hager called me Lauren Grassner Odding. <laughs> Um, and and I went to University of Texas, and she went to uh, UT A and M, right? Yeah, Hook'em Horns. But she went to A and M, and my uh, my husband was like, "Well, what do you expect from an Aggie?" So you know, I always <laughs> say I've been called worse, but yeah. <laughs> she so. said Glasner, Grasner, Lauren Grasner. Oh, so all of my good friends call me LGO. So mm. my website's heylgo.com, oh, cool. and yeah. social media's heylgo. Because I'm like. You know, you have three letters in your last name. It I shouldn't know. be so bad. Imagine I I've got like eight hundred and seven. Like, I mean, yeah, yours is tough. yeah, yours is a challenging name. It's why I wrote it up on the whiteboard, and I've been staring at it, making sure I don't screw it up. But uh, oh, by the way, before we go any further, uh, limitlesspossibility.com is Laura's website. Is that the best place to go to get yeah. the book? Well, they can go to limitlesspossibility.com or right. heylgo, like heylgo.com, hey, and of course, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and anywhere fine books any, are sold. Yeah. Oh, and in Boston, it. you can go to uh, the the Starbucks that's attached to the Barnes and Noble at and it's uh, right there on the shelves. Sure. The in the uh, well, the shops at Proof. They're little, yeah, they're the little the, commuter oh, yeah, lounge yeah. right at that Starbucks, and it, the sure. one that's like right outside in the hallway. Yeah, I know it. Um, 
in actual live bookstores. Isn't and they're cool? signed. Those did, are signed copies. Oh, I want one. Did you do? Now, Laura brought me a copy of the book, so thank you, Laura. Maybe I'll have you sign it later. But what? But um, did you do book signings? Like it? Uh, we're getting off topic, but that's okay. That's I did. I did. We uh, we see. I've broken my way out of the vault. It's like KG Miami. No, I'm gonna. Person. I got at least one more question for <laughs> okay. you before you officially leave the so vault. But go ahead. We, uh, so I did. I did. I uh, so when the book came out, I did tons of speaking, and as soon as you finish speaking, they whisk you off stage and they put you on a little a little table with like 17 uh, sharpies, and you sign books. And the, the hardest part about that is that when I speak for 45 minutes, I'm pretty animated. I'm like motivating and yeah. inspiring, and I leave it all on the stage. And like my my little you know whoop band, my my fitness tracker actually sees it as a workout it like automatically tracks it <laughs> really? as a workout I burn like 450 calories <laughs> in, you know, in an hour and then I sit down and people come up to me and you know they'll come up to me they're like hi my name is Michelle with one L fine my name is John with an H fine and then like by the time you get like three quarters of the way through the line someone will be like my name's Crystal with a K but two S's and four Y's and you're like wait what just give me one letter at a time K R it's like you suddenly become like like an imbecile like you can't, like you cannot right. keep the letters in your brain so i you know anyone who gets my name in halfway right i'm like that's cool that's whatever when you, that's Close when enough. that's when you start uh signing the book hey partner or hey to my new best friend hey friend hey friend yeah um all right w- one more question before we let you out of the boston ball because you mentioned this before we started recording and i find it interesting you said that you 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 still don't feel completely at home here having uh, grown up in miami but that in 2013 with the marathon bombing, that was kind of a moment where you kind of felt some pride for Boston or what? Tell me about that. It was the first time I really felt like Boston was my home. Um, so uh, I moved here uh, about five years before my husband and I had kids and it was really hard to break in. It was hard to get to know people. You know, people are kind of like of here. They like went to high school, they went to college here, they went to whatever. And they just know people and they're sort of like in their circles. And it's, it's kind of tough to break in. Then we had kids and we met lots of people in our, you know, like preschool you know, stuff, preschool classes and like new moms groups. And that was lovely. But I, I, when I was 39 years old, I had like a midlife crisis and I ran my first mile of my life. Mm-hmm. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to run a, you know, the 5K and I'm going to run a 10K. And then, of course, you're like, I'm in Boston. I'm going to run the marathon. Yeah. So I ran the marathon in 2012. Um, it was 92 degrees. It was, you know, totally awful. Uh, I was like, I'm going to run it again. Absolutely. But I injured so you myself. Finished. You finished I finished it. it. Yep. I, I was training for a four-hour run and it took me five hours and 12 minutes because it was 92 degrees. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I'm going to do it again. And I couldn't because I was, I was injured, but I was involved in the mar- like a, the Marathon Coalition, which is a group of charity runners. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like I said, I, I'd only run my first mile ever. I wasn't fast, so I had to raise money. Mm-hmm. And um, so in 2013, College Bound Dorchester, which is a nonprofit on whose board I've sat for like 10 years, uh, they had bibs. And so I was running with all their runners up, you know, Heartbreak Hill. I probably ran 17 miles that day. And the last runner uh, was after all the uh, college-bound runners went by was a Girl Scout uh, runner, and she wasn't that fast. She was, you know, pretty heavy person. She wasn't that fast, and she was going for like a six-hour run. And all of a sudden, at the I saw at you know the bottom of Heartbreak Hill, we run up to the top, and then all of a sudden I see um, I see police cars going by, and I'm thinking to myself. I know she's slow, but she's not that slow. Like, what's <laughs> yeah, going on? And then yeah, all of a sudden, all the volunteers, like, get together in this, like, prayer circle, and my phone is ringing off the hook, and I'm like, I'm running the marathon. Goodbye. And I keep hanging up. And finally, like, my text messages, it's like, you know, my phone's what they yeah, yeah. say, like, blowing up. Yeah. And and I realize what's happening. Mm. And we end up, the woman that I'm with has this complete... Um, uh, like like a, like she she just like had a panic attack and so yeah. we're in the um, medical tent. She's getting you know IV. She's getting calmed down by the doctors. Her family's all. No wait, the how, line. so how close were you? To, how many miles away were you? We were at the top of Heartbreak Hill, so we were six okay. miles away. Oh, medical, not we, medical tent at the end. Not at the end. So oh, okay. we are. So, but yeah. her family's at the medical tent at the end. Right. My husband's office is right there at the end. Like we like the the. The, the, the information we were getting was that there were explosions at the finish line right. and people were dead and we had no idea how many we had no idea what we couldn't find her family I couldn't get in touch with my husband we were there for an hour trying to like figure all this stuff out and then her family was fine my husband was fine but we couldn't find some of the other runners from college bound it took my kids about 15 seconds to understand that the, that the time that I finished the so I ran Boston in 2012 I was upset about the time, so I ran Chicago uh, six months later, and I ran it in the amount of time my kids were like, that's when the bombs went off, right? Like they, they, they realized that that, that it was super close. Yeah. 
two days later, I'm flying. I've had a flight in New York for work, and I'm flying back. And the, for whatever reason, the pilot is circling um, Boston a few times before landing. And I look down, and I see beautiful Boston below me, like the yeah. whole, like the harbor and the city. And, and I just started sobbing. It was like the moment where all the emotion came out because all the, the, the charity runners that I was connected to who were injured, who were connected, we, we knew the family, you know, of, 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 um, of Martin. Like we, we, we were connected wow. into all of it. And yeah. all of these charity runners in this group were all right there at the finish because it was right when the charity runners were finishing. So, of course, I had to run in 2014. Um, and so I feel feel because of my connection to Boston and the nonprofit sector here and the marathon runners that I ran with and just that was the moment I yeah. was like I just I looked down at the city from the plane and I was like this is my home like that was the moment when I finally felt like I was really home yeah and it it was a good it became you know a point of pride for so many people and so kind of glad to hear that, that you know that was a moment where you it, it kind of rustled up my pride as well I mean you know Bostonians are a fickle group one one minute we're proud of our uh, town and then the next minute we're uh, this fucking sucks yeah, well, I should move to San Diego you know or, or whatever but um, I I my pride never swelled before like it did that week when when just it it felt uh it was one of these things where you know i mean it's become a trope right everybody on the internet oh thoughts and prayers oh can you believe what's going out gone in chicago and you know let's be honest not everyone's being genuine when they do that they just want to look like the nice person but because you, you can't I'm, i mean if someone you don't know there's some tragedy afflicts them halfway across the world or something it, it's hard for a reasonable person to be really hurt by that but when it happens in your backyard when it happens when you're on the marathon course like i was downtown that day i was probably about a half mile from the finish line just kind of walking my car i'd gone to the red sox game that morning and when you started seeing the i started seeing faces of people i knew something was wrong found out what was wrong it really hit home, and then I felt like as, and then we had the lockdown. You remember what a oh, bizarre yeah. week it was, and the lockdown is they're looking for the bad guys, and then to finally catch them. And you know, I love the whoever said it first. You know, that it took the uh, U.S. government, you know, years to find Osama bin Laden. Like two assholes put put a bomb on Boylston Street. Give us a week, we're gonna track those guys down. Yeah, <laughs> right. Did, this know. is our fucking city, right? Yeah, like exactly. that's, that's, I yeah. think that's right. In the opening of my show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, and I and I loved it. And I, I wrote this um, Facebook uh, long Facebook post about a week after. Afterwards, and I was like, I just, I feel the need to explain this to people who don't live here. Like, it's not just the marathon. Like, this is Boston's right. coming out party. This is our spring awakening. This is the moment where everyone just like gets rid of the like, the, the, literally like the like like the grime and the dirt Was, of winter, yeah. and just like comes out and is just like happy. Like, everyone's so happy alive. that day. Everyone's so happy that day. Everyone's cheering for someone. There are all those moments of triumph, whether you finish, you know, first or like you know, four thousandth. You know, every, there, there are so many stories. You know. The the, the news is laden with them and and it's you you know that day was a beautiful day right it was yeah. a sunny day and yeah, so this was and it was like could, an assault on our identity right. as a city as a community as people and i just i the way everyone came together that day and support and it because everybody because of the timing of it it wasn't he, he didn't just attack a bunch of you know unbelievably fast kenyans that are you know passing the, that, right. are, that are finishing this was like they attacked the the common man yeah. on that day, and yeah. so it was it was just really beautiful the way everyone came together. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get out of the vault. Congratulations. And again, just to remind people, it's it's that's for you. <laughs> Laura Gassner Otling, and the book is Limitless: How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Path, and Live Your Best Life. And I'm going to ask you how you actually do that. So you know, we've got a few more minutes before LimitlessPossibility.com is where you go to find the book. So Laura's going to cure all my problems. Tell me how to ignore everybody. I can't wait to ignore everybody. It sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about our sponsor, the U.S. Postal Service, second largest employer in the United States, offering paid training and ways to move up. Apply today. USPS.com/careers. From mail carriers to corporate management, the USPS works together to provide efficient, affordable service to the American public. The workers are the backbone of its service, and the USPS wants to develop and advance careers. So its development programs train and prepare employees for promotions and growth in a variety of business areas. Everything you need to know is at the website, usps.com careers. It's the policy of the Postal Service to provide equal employment opportunity and prevent employment discrimination. Postal Service seeks to attract and retain a diverse workforce in which employees respect and value each other's differences and don't ignore each other. In this particular instance, okay, so they have to they have to uh, respect and value each other's differences, and then they'll learn how to ignore each other later in a respectful way. I don't know. I try to weave in, you know, I try to make it topical. The library gets a little um, 
uh, repetitive. And fairness, so that all employees are able, I've lost everybody, are able to participate and contribute to their full pot- potential. Apply today, website, usps.com slash careers, United States Postal Service, deliver for the nation. Also want to thank our friends at Adori, that's A-D-O-R-I. Download the Adori app and your podcast will come to life like this one like if you're wondering hey that book by uh laura sounds awesome i want to buy it well if you're listening on the adori app you're looking at your phone and there's a link right there to click through and buy the book isn't that cool that is awesome cha-ching right i love my cha-ching sounds um so uh and thanks to our friends at adori if you want to know more about adori adorilabs.com all right so all right so here we go so uh, ignore everybody carve your path and live your best life Uh, i don't want to ask you this sort of mundane like uh, like, so how did you get the idea for this book? But there are a lot of books out there. Um, and a lot of, so would you classify this as a self-help book? Is that fair? You know, it's funny. I thought I wrote a business book. I really okay. did at first. Yeah. I was yeah. like, cause you know, purpose doing work that matters. I thought I was writing a book about how to, how to, how to, how to have a career that works for you. And then about a month after the book came out, I started noticing who was paying attention to it and what kinds of media hits I was getting. And I wasn't just on the today show. I was on like the, with Hoda and Jenna Bush, which is like the 9am hour, you know, and, and, and I, what was that like, by the way, I caught your humble brag the first time you said, no, no, well, today. No, I mean, I listen. I can humble brag. I can humble brag way more than that. But okay. um, I've been amazed at the at the reception this book has had. But I called my publisher about a month in, and I was like, "Dude, I think I wrote a self help book." Right. Well, oh be- my god! And he was like, yeah, "Duh." So, so you didn't you didn't set out to to write a self help book I am- because why? Because self the reason like self-help like self-help like it's, it's so i had the wrong impression so... of self-help i thought self-help was like light a bunch of candles and say some mantras yeah. and life will be great but what i realized because you know i get introduced on stage as a kick in the ass wrapped in a warm hug right like i'm pretty tough like yep. that's pretty i'm you know I, I don't i don't make small talk right and what i realized about self-help is that there is like there is the self and there's the help and like I can bring the help and you got to bring all yourself if you want. Like there's a lot of work you got to do. So it's not just lighting candles and mantras. Like you actually have to make hard changes. Yep. So I'm actually pretty proud now that it's a self-help book, mostly because I figured out that self-help wasn't what I thought it was. I mean, shame on me. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question about the Today Show. So the Today Show was the very first interview I ever gave on the book and the very first time I ever did TV. Wow. But my publicist Straight called me up top. and was like, uh, hey, uh, so a producer at the Today Show wants to know if you can be there on Monday. And I was like, is the answer ever no? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Ever yeah. say no. Sorry, uh, I have to get a root canal that day. Like, no, of course, yeah. yes. I, yeah. uh, let me see what I can do. <laughs> right, 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 right. In the future, you don't have to ask. I'll just be there. Yes, right. just, yep. just let's go. Yep. Yeah. And so um, – Cool experience. Were you, were you nervous? Uh, yeah, I was terrified. How long was the segment? Like, uh, it was four minutes, which is okay. like apparently like a big. Segment, yeah, that's right? that's four minutes for um, morning TV. And yeah. it was it was Hoda and Jenna Bush, and then Ryan Eggold was there because he was right before. And mm-hmm. I guess he's on a TV show. And all of my friends afterwards was like, "Oh my God, Ryan Eggold!" And I'm like, he's like, "How'd you stay calm?" And I was like, "Cause I didn't know who he was." Yeah, I'm not so sure I know who he is either. He's a TV host. Yeah, no, he's a, he's he's on Amsterdam. Like it's, it's a, That's like a, a it's like a, a, like one of those like hospital shows, okay. you know, like oh, right. okay. ER I, or yeah. something. Yeah. I'd know him if I saw him, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I mean, apparently he's a big deal, which is cool, but I, you know, and thank God because he had nothing to do on the show except like hang out and just chill in yeah. between segments. And so Hoda and Jenna Bush have like the, you know, the little thing in their ear Earpiece. and they're listening to the producer who's telling them ostensibly how to say my name <laughs> and right. things like that. So they don't talk to you at all. And then as soon as the lights come on, they're like, hello, welcome to the TV show. And you're <laughs> like, wait, what? Huh? But he was just hanging out cause he had nothing to do. And he was just talking to me, which was great because yeah. it totally calmed me down because mm-hmm. by the time the segment started, we were just in conversation. Mm-hmm. So thank God for Ryan Eggold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's weird. It's 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 surreal sometimes when you're on a TV set. I used to do a fair not nat. Well, I did a couple national things, but I used to work for Lawyers Weekly here in town. And so when they needed a legal, legal expert, I would be on. And it it's um it can be nerve wracking once that like the camera rolls. Sometimes I just it just feels like you're kind of you suspend belief and you just uh, if you're doing it well, you're just kind of talking to the person. You're not actually thinking that you're on. TV. I mean, was it like that for you or? Um, so the Today Show was, it was, you know, it's just you and them on a couch and you're having a conversation. The the um, Good Morning America was different because there's like a live studio audience. Mm-hmm. And when we were, uh, we were walking out, the producer said to Amy Roback, who was the one who was going to interview me. So at, you know, at this point in the segment, you're going to ask everyone in the audience, have you ever made a decision based on what everyone else thought you should do? And everyone's right. hands are going to go up. And then I said, 
And then I'm going to say, and how many of you are happy? And everyone's hands will go down. And the producer's like, oh, that's really dangerous. Are you sure you want to do that? And I was like, dude, hold my beer. Like, yeah. now, so I would never have done that on the Today Show in you know late March, but then you fast forward three months and I've done a hundred interviews. I've been on tons of TV. I've done lots of um, speaking. And like, I now at this point, I'm like, this is a self-help book. And I know exactly how people are going to respond to this question. So, you know, it, it's, it's incredible the experience that you have, but because it was a live studio audience, I was so much more energized and it was so fun. And it was just... It, it, it just changed. And the changed raise everything. the hand trick worked? Absolutely. Every single okay. hand yeah. went down. Except there was one person who you Wait, could tell was like. Wait, ask me the question again. Ask me a question again. So the question is, have you made decisions in your life right. based on what everyone else thought was the right thing for you? Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And have all those decisions made you happy? Have all They all made me happy. No, no. I'm putting my hand down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is a big thing with me. I, I'm often... Um, you know, there's certain like, you know, inspirational quotes are fine. You can find an inspirational quote to support anything. And sometimes they can completely disagree with each other. But there's one sort of inspirational. It's not even a quote. It's like a factoid. But like they surveyed intensive care uh, nurses about and, and um, Laura's nodding her head. You've probably heard this one. And the number one regret on deathbed, I'm paraphrasing maybe, but was that I regret that I led the life other people expected me to instead of the one I truly wanted to. That is you know the that? absolute crux of this book. All right, cool. You you came to the right place because because I, I I I latch on to that and and oftentimes the decisions you make are like you said earlier in the show really hard really hard but but you know it's it's that um, it's that thing and it's uh, to to bring up a weird parallel the the Al Pacino character in um, Scent of a Woman uh, you know that that guy. He says during his big speech at the end, you know, uh, I've always known the right thing to do. I just never had necessarily had the courage to do the right thing or something like that. And it's true. You, you usually know what the right thing is, right? So, so give, give me some examples. Like, yeah, so you know those moments in your life where the very best of what you do is being brought about to solve a problem at hand, like a problem you actually care about, and you're being rewarded for it in some way that is either financially or karmically interesting to you. Mm -hmm. Like Those are the moments when you're in alignment, you're in flow, you have consonants, right? The what you do matches who you are. You are what I call limitless. And so the idea behind the book is that if, if you're so busy checking off all the little check boxes on everyone else's idea of everyone else's path to everyone else's version of success, then you're going to build this great life. It's going to be an amazing life on paper. Yeah. And you're going to look down one day and go, well, great, I built this great life, but it's, I built someone else's life. It was the life for, that my mom wanted me to have, or my teacher wanted me to have, or my boss wants me to have, or my friends want me to have. And I say, screw all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of those fancy friends with their fancy Facebook photos and their perfect, you know, sunset yeah. pictures, you know, on their perfect vacations that actually are probably pretty miserable, but this is like their curated life, right? So we're like, we're judging our bloopers but everyone else's highlight reels and we feel like a failure because we're so busy trying to build their highlight reel as our life and so what I want people to do is I want them to think about what will actually make you happy like what is meaningful to you what is your purpose and so the book talks about how this sort of framework of how to get there but it's based on this idea that the only way that your life will truly feel right for you is if it actually is right for you and that has to start with your own definition not somebody else's checklist yeah and uh, I'm so with you because um, I particularly, I think, grew up in a time where the, the, you just had to follow the path, or at least I thought I was I was the, the firstborn. I have two younger brothers and my parents didn't put a lot of pressure on me, but I put pressure on myself. And it, it was a time and maybe this is the way for everyone sort of in high school. And you start to talk about, you know, what college you're going to go to. And then you get that in your brain and what graduate school and then what right. job you're going to do. And Doctor, all, lawyer, teacher, nurse. Right. Like it was like there were specific and finite choices. Right. And somewhere along the way, you're going to get married. You're going to have, you know, your two and a half kids, as yep. Billy Crystal says, and you're going to go and you're going to go and you check, you just start checking boxes and you think, well, I have to check this box. You know, I have to do it. I have to do it this way. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's uh, and so so it's did you do that? Did you did you begin checking boxes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I uh, I I found myself in law school because I was told by a fourth grade teacher that I was a really argumentative young lady and that I should probably become a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I went, okay. I mean, first I told her she was wrong, of course, because I was yep. very argumentative. But then I, I proceeded to create this path that put me into law school where I looked around on the very first day and I went, I made a huge mistake. What like, law school I don't belong here. It was University of Florida. And, okay. it, and it was University of Florida because I wasn't smart enough to get into Harvard. Um, so I went to the best school in the state. 
where I was from, right? right. Miami. Because I thought I was going to run for office. I thought I was going to solve all the problems and life would be great. Mm. And I looked around the first day and I realized I didn't belong there. I didn't want to be there. I wasn't actually interested in it. And uh, I started dating this terrible guy, <laughs> which is, you know, the things that you do when you realize you're making terrible mistakes in life. You just compound them and make more. Right. But this guy actually uh, uh, gave me a ride home from uh, campus on a rainy day because I used to ride my bike. He's like, I'll put your bike in the back of my IROC Z. That should tell you about this guy. And that's a joke that actually works really well in some uh, some speeches. But when they're all millennials, they have no idea what an yeah, is. And right. they're like, what? No, we, <laughs> do, we, we in my fraternity, we named my friend Elon. I'll shout out Elon. We named him Iraq because he resembled, even though he didn't have an Iraq, he looked like a, he was a kid from. Uh, Brooklyn, I think Brooklyn, or I don't know. He had he had a very little you know, accent, and he just he looked like um, he should have had an IROC. He should have had an IROC, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. So he puts my car in the back of his IROC Z, and he drives me to this teeny little uh, um, storefront in um, a strip mall in Gainesville, Florida. He's like, I want I, this guy's running for president. I'm interested in learning where he stands, and because you know back then before the internet, you had to actually go and pick up physical paper at a strip mall. Yeah, and in the corner of the room was this uh, little black and white TV with then uh, Governor Bill Clinton telling um, a story about how he believed that there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with Wait, America. Wait, Clinton is the guy on the Iraq that threw the, the bike in the back? <laughs> no, no, oh, no, okay. no, no. I want to get the story straight. No, 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 no. no. He, but, but, uh, but he was on the video. And I all of a sudden was like, oh, my God, that needs to happen. And so I dropped out of law school and I joined his campaign. Wow. Right. That's like your West Wing moment. Yeah, like that, it was like, crazy. Like that's kind of the premise of the West Wing is that the his his top aides, I wasn't even a huge fan of the show, but I remember sort of the inception, the the, the guy played by, oh, geez. Uh, Bradley Martin. Whitford. And, yeah, well, like Bradley he's the real Whitford, deal. He's this, he's Bradley that. Bradley Whitford is the guy who looks at the candidate, Martin Sheen, right, and says, and says wow, this guy, yeah. So that's cool. So that so. was my moment. But, you know, but it, but I went to law school because I was told I should. On that campaign, I dated, um, the, the I joke around, it's the man of my mother's dreams. It was like the six foot two, nice Jewish boy, medical student named Alan, with whom I had no spark, right? And mm. my mom was like, you just have to concentrate. God forbid, I, you know, <laughs> thank God I didn't end up marrying him because I would yeah. have been miserable, right? But like all along the way, there were these moments where I did the thing I was supposed to do because I was told, go to law school, date the nice boy, do all the things you're supposed to do. And I was not happy. And, uh, you know, if you fast forward to me sitting uh, in a beautiful corner office, youngest vice president of a, a, a very, uh, you know, marquee executive search firm, I'm looking around saying, great, I'm doing all the right work. My career is super successful. But my clients, they're they are changing the world. They're doing amazing things. And I think that I am too. But really what I'm doing is I'm ensuring, I am ensuring a good profit and loss statement for my company. Right. That's actually not where my heart is. So I want to be doing that. Right. The, these people are working for various causes and nonprofits. You're working with them. Yes. That, that's what's going on? Yes. Okay. So I quit. I quit the firm because I realized that I wasn't part of the solution, mm -hmm. which only left me feeling like I was part of the problem. And I started my own firm. And I started my own firm actually based on what mattered to me, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to do the very best work I could do for these nonprofits. I wanted to make enough money. <clears throat> I wanted to make enough money because, you know, I, I want to change the world, but I'm also a princess and I like to go on nice vacations. Uh, so I needed to figure out. You can out, have both. Right. You can have both. So yeah. I needed to figure out a business model that allowed me to do the work I wanted to do for the clients that I wanted to serve, but also make enough money to have the kind of life that I wanted to have. And that's really when I started realizing that there was a different way to live the life that I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I heard someone on a podcast once say, stop focusing on being rich and focus on leading a rich life. Because yeah. because people, um, you know, people who check the boxes, sometimes they they have, you know, if we're, if we're talking like net wealth, net, what do we call that? Net worth. Net worth. <laughs> I don't have enough. So that's why I, I can't. You're, you're unfamiliar with the, with the term. I'm unfamiliar. <laughs> I, I, my worth doesn't have enough net. Uh, so, you know, th those people, yeah, sure, they may have a ton of money, but what do they not all of them really enjoy it. You know, it, it, it almost becomes a noose. Yeah, and, but here's and, the thing. Go ahead. When, when, I, when I started the firm and I created it in a way that brought out my very best, like the, when, when I was able to be limitless, when I was able to do my very best work, Harvard Business Review calls this your fundamental state of leadership, right? Mm -hmm. When you are at your very best firing on all cylinders. When I was able to create a business model that allowed me to do that, then 
my excellence shone through in a way where I actually made much more money than when I was at the traditional firm. So my net worth actually increased. And not only that, I was actually able to go to the kids' music recitals. I was able to, you know, go to a spin class at 10 a.m. I was able to, you know, I, I worked at, you know, 9 p.m. on a Thursday, but I also was able to do whatever I wanted at 2 p.m. on a Friday. So I created a life because I said, what is the calling? What do I care about? Right? What is the thing I want to do? I want to help change the world. What's my connection? I want to make sure that the work I'm doing on a daily basis matters so that it actually, I'm not just busy, I'm actually impactful. What's the contribution that I want? Like, how is this job, this paycheck, this brand helping me build the kind of career that I'm looking for, manifest my values on a daily basis, be the kind of person that I want? And then lastly, control. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I need to have absolute control. Like I sit on the aisle of every airplane, not because I think that I'm going to survive the fiery ball of hell that's plummeting to earth, Mm -hmm. but because I just need the illusion of control, right? Like control matters to me. So I took those four elements. You just want to be the first one off. I, well, also that too. I, I, you know, listen, checking bags is for suckers. So I want to actually be the first one on. That's oh, it's really, so true. It's really what matters. So true. But so, you know, the book is based around this idea of consonance, right? The what you do matching who you are. And it's made up of those four elements of calling, connection, contribution, and control. And each one of us at every age and at every life stage will want different amounts of it. So my definition is going to be different than yours, but each of our definitions at every age will be different than the one that it was from our age before. You know, when I dropped out of law school and joined that campaign at 21, I was more than happy to be paid all the idealism and ramen soup I could eat. Now, not so much, right? So, you know, I had no connection. I was getting coffee for the guy who got coffee for the guy. But that's for me now when I've got, you know, two teenage kids, I've got, you know, a husband, I've got, you know, a whole life, I've got, I'm sitting on local boards or things that I do. Getting coffee is not going to make me happy. My work has to actually be directly in line with the money that is coming in the door. You know, Linda Evangelista, right? Like I don't get out of bed for less than $25,000 a day. I I feel that quote. I didn't understand that quote when I was 22, but boy, do I feel that quote now. So it sounds it sounds like, but you had to learn it, right? So we, we have to we have to we have to learn these things, or, or just just read Lars' book, and it's a shortcut. But but that those uh, moments, those you know epiphanies or whatever, they don't. It 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 takes time. It takes time to realize, like you know, I was married for twenty three years, and and um, yeah, sometimes I, my friends will ask me, you know, what why didn't you you know end it sooner if you knew it wasn't going to work? And it's like, well, that that's not a decision you make hastily. It, you know, it takes time. You know, and 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 to to be sure of these things, or it takes time to leave a job that you've been with for so long. But I always say to myself, I look back at myself when I was 20 and I say, that kid knew nothing. He knew nothing. Look at, he was doing, and like you, like you say, following the path, doing all the things that I think I'm supposed to do. And, you know, then I look back on me when I was 30 and 40 and I can s- sort of say the same thing. So what I'm trying to do is this, how do we do this, Laura? How do we look forward, like, pretend that we're 10 years older so i'm i just turned 51 yesterday yeah happy birthday birthday. so when i'm 61 what am i going to look back and say i'm trying to think of that now do you know what i'm saying yeah so okay so here's the thing like so in these 127 other podcasts i've done i often get the question like well what would you tell your 20 year old self and and my answer is always like my 20 year old self who's listening to this podcast over you know, on my iPhone that's I'm listening to over the internet, like none of those things existed, right? So even if when you were 20, you did know yourself and you did know something, the world around you changes so much that there's no way to predict it. And so what I tell people is just keep going into rooms that have more doors than the last one that you were in, right? Like do good work with interesting people that you like, right? The The work and that you like. With the doors. Right. So if you walk into a room and that room allows you to have fewer choices than the room you were just in, then you're actually, you, you are, you are reducing your optionality. You want to continue to increase your optionality. So it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to go into those doors. You're not going to go down that path, but just continuing to keep yourself open to options will allow you to do whatever you want. Because look, people say, if you follow your passion, right? If you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Follow your passion. And and I think that's bullshit, mm-hmm. really. Because if people who follow their passion, the first time things get hard, they say, oh, that must not be my passion then, or, or, or it would have all worked out. I could have just followed it, like the girl with the flower crown looking over Coachella, you know, in the beautiful sunset yeah. Instagram meme. Yeah. So I want people to know you have to invest in your passion. Like, you're going to get knocked down. You're going to pick yourself back up over and over again. And I think your passion deserves that, right? Yeah. So what I would say is do things that are interesting to you. Like, if, if, if I asked you what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail, and told you that was your passion, I'd be lying to you, yeah. right? 
What would you do if you knew for sure you would fail, but you'd want to do it anyway? That's your passion. So what are you going to do when you're 61? I have no idea, but if you keep doing things that are interesting to you, whether you fail or whether you succeed, the, the, the journey of learning about those things will help you figure out what you want to do. Right. I had no, I didn't plan to write this book. I didn't plan to do this media. I didn't plan to be a speaker. I, I founded um, an executive search firm when I realized that I was part of the problem mm-hmm. and I ran it for 15 years and then I sold it to the women who helped me build it. Right? I did an ESOP, which is not easy to do for a, for a, a, um, a, a professional services firm. And then I got asked to do a TEDx and my response when I got asked to do TEDx Cambridge was no way like no way that scares me i don't want to be on camera i don't want to be on tv really? i don't want to be on the stage that's surprising absolutely not but i took that call because on- you you had uh, just a kind of a general distaste for public speaking at i was the time. You i seem was pretty comfortable with it now <laughs> now yeah, yeah it's three years later okay. i was terrified but i took the call on speakerphone while i was driving because you know i'm a good mom mm-hmm. and uh my my 17 year old who was 14 at the time was in the passenger seat next to me and he turns to me because i was like no 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 goodbye hang up uh and he turns to me and he's like hey mom don't you always tell me i need to do things that scare me mm-hmm. and don't you always tell me if it doesn't challenge me it doesn't change me and don't you always tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear and i was like oh yeah mm-hmm. and he's like so what yeah. what gives mom mm-hmm. yeah that's what you get for being a good mom right <laughs> that bites Thanks you in the ass throwing that back in my so face yeah. fast forward six weeks and i'm on the tedx stage which is at the boston opera house so like beautiful 2600 oh, yeah. people gold guild walls i mean it was terrifying mm-hmm. but i did it Mm-hmm. I crushed it for like 11 and a half minutes. And then there's this moment where you see me look off stage left. And if you know me well, you know that I have no idea what I'm supposed to say next. I totally forgot the next line. But then I gathered myself and I and I finished. But in the middle of that talk, I said something funny and somebody in stage right laughed. Mm-hmm. And then I said something meaningful and somebody in stage left went, yes. Yep. And inside I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I want more Got of him. that. <laughs> no, oh, right? yeah. it was like crack. I was yeah. just suddenly like, oh, yeah. So... I, I love I, the people that nod, just even just nod, like when you're, when you're if you're speaking in front of a group. Your or friendlies. E- yeah, or even a group of like a, a dozen people. I can't stand it when people just like stare at you like you need, uh, like I try to nod when I'm looking at somebody. It just kind of shows you're paying attention if nothing else, but that's what public speaking is. It's, yeah. it's two ways. It's usually the women yeah. that nod. Usually the men don't. The women are the friendlies. <laughs> They're right. always the friendlies. Yeah. So I did that. So I went into that door and then that door gave me other doors and now I'm making my living as a speaker and an author. So I, if you would have told me five years ago that that's what I would do, I would have laughed at you. But who knows? I'll tell you, you know, the hardest audience to speak to is the military. Really? Well, they just stand there. They sit there like bolt upright and they stare at you like information intake. And you think that they're <laughs> plotting your death. Yeah. And then they'll come up to you afterwards and they'll be like, I learned this and I learned this and I learned this and I learned this. And you're like, wait, weren't you like in uh, like the second row? Just right. But that's just how they're trained. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. I did a TED, a TED style talk at an event a couple of years ago. And I had that moment where I completely lost what I was going to say next. And so I just kind of like kind of re-repeated and... I think I covered it well. I got back on track. But when I, if I go back and watch the video, I can tell exactly where. I, I, I can't I even feel, watch it. I, yeah, see, I, I feel bad for it. myself in that moment. I'm like, oh, Dave, you poor guy. You're dead. <laughs> yeah, you know, those yeah. short talks are actually harder than longer talks. I love a 45-minute talk in front of 5,000 people. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. But to give like a 12-minute talk in front of 20, that's just, that's that's the hardest thing ever. It is hard. That's one of the reasons why I like it. It's it's There's an art form to getting all the cool stuff in there, and you inevitably have to cut a bunch of stuff. So um, got a, we're up against the clock here a little bit, but I had a couple more questions. Well, maybe this is a good question. Maybe this is genius. Maybe it's stupid. I don't know. But this whole idea of lead, of living limitless and how we all get um, stuck in these patterns and then we post the stupid inter- Instagram photos. And by the way, enough with the feet on the beach, everybody. Posting feet on the beach. Or like, or like stop taking photos of yourself sitting on your porch so we, I can see your coffee and the novel you're reading like read the fucking book okay so if you're having so much fun reading the fucking book read the fucking book you don't have to tell us about it it, it drives me nuts so you hit on something that i that, but is it gen- generationally do you think it's changing do you think the young the younger generation like you're you like you're i have a, I have a son who's 17 i think you, you said yes. you have a son the same um i can tell you but i want to hear your answer first are they going to be better or worse at following this pattern that's expected of them I think it's going to be the same, same, to be honest. I mean, you know, I felt just as influenced by people around me when the internet didn't internet didn't exist as my kids feel now. I mean, right. there's more of it's noisy, but 
when we don't know who we are, what do we do? We, we look to other people to help define us. Like we need walls to bounce against. Mm-hmm. We just need it. And to, you know, when, when we were kids, those walls were, you know, physical. Now they're like the Kardashians on Instagram or like yeah. girls in flower crowns. So like, you know, I had to, I had to, I had to measure myself up against the mean girls in the cafeteria, but like girls today are measuring themselves up against, you know, these like ninnies and flower crowns that are, you know, like yeah, it, you're it right. just doesn't make it. I mean, so I think that stuff still exists. I think at the end of the day, what's really important is to figure out who really matters to you and to listen to them, to get their advice. I think we spend too much time giving votes to people in our lives who shouldn't even have voices. Like all of those people, like you think about the people who impact you, like, when, when I sold my company, I ran into a friend of mine on Boylston Street. And she was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. What are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. Mm. I'm going to figure it out. And this look of terror came over her face. Like, she, <laughs> she didn't know. She was afraid know. for you. <laughs> she, no, she was afraid for her. Why? That's what's interesting. So you think somebody's afraid for you because yeah. they're looking at you and they don't. But, A, they don't know where they, there's, like, no shortcut anymore. They can't just put you in a box. Like, Laura does executive search, right. nonprofit sector, done. Right. Right. They don't know where to put you. So suddenly you're free floating in their mind like they have no idea. And they're immediately thinking, oh, my God, what if I had freedom? What if I could do something else? Could I sell my company? What would I do next? What am I going to do when I retire? Oh, my God. So they are actually afraid for them. So this fear that people have and the reflection they give us, like when we go up to somebody, we tell them our biggest hopes and dreams. They're not thinking, can Dave do it? They're thinking, can I do it? Mm, and we have to stop letting those people and their fears and their lack of ambition or their, you know, uh, uh, handicapping anxiety stop us because that's what limits us from being the best version that we can be. Yeah, you're right. And it's it's become kind of a cliche, but people say, don't surround yourself with, get rid of the negative people in your life. And it, I always say, well, what am I supposed to do? Like hire a hitman and just have them take them out? Like they're in my life. I'm not I gonna, call them, no, those are <laughs> but, psychic vampires. I call those people <laughs> psychic vampires. They come up to you and they suck away the energy and the joy and the dreams that you have. And they do it without you even realizing. It's like this insidious thing where where they they have a hard time being happy for you when you're succeeding yes. because they're so, it's such a reflection of the fact that they're not. So, you know, Jim Rohn has this this concept that you are, you are the average of the five people you keep closest to you. And I believe if you are the smartest person in any room, you're in the wrong room. When I wrote this book, the reason that this book was successful, uh, there are three reasons. The first is this, you know, crazy shift in title, right? The second is that it's this beautiful cover that's really easy to have viral in the social media world. But the third is that- The cover, uh, by the way, if you're on the Adore app, you're looking at it, but it's an an infinity symbol, um, but it looks, how would you describe that? It's just bright yellow and it's this silver thing and it just pops out. And, you know, when it's on a shelf of business books, it doesn't look like other business books. But the third reason, and I think the biggest reason this book was so successful, is that there's a woman by the name of Carrie Lorenz. And Carrie Lorenz was the first female F-14 fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. She is a badass extraordinaire. And by the way, Boston, uh, she won the head of the Charles when she was in college, you know, as a rower. She's amazing. So she, I called her up and I was like, you know, I don't really know you that well. You're kind of awesome. I would love it. Could you maybe think about possibly even considering blurbing my book? She was like, yes. I would love to do that. You're a badass. I'd love to do it. She reads the book. She calls me three days later and she's like, can we talk about your book for a minute? And I thought she was going to tell me it was amazing Mm because I'm an idiot. And (laughs) what she said was, and this is a direct quote. So sorry for people who are offended by, you know, bad language. Podcast. You're, um, Laura, you're really fucking smart. (laughs) And this book is really fucking good, but you're too fucking smart for this book to just be really fucking good. You need to make it really fucking great. And then I'll blurb the shit. Wow. And then she spent, she spent 45 minutes on the phone with me, helping me figure out exactly what the problem was. She did not let me settle for mediocrity. Mm. So I think that if we're so busy giving votes to all the people in our lives who are afraid for their own lack of success by thinking about our success, and we don't put people in our lives like Carrie Lorenz, who don't let us settle for mediocrity, but force us to be the very best versions of ourselves, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. Usually, did you know it when you heard it, like when she started explaining, like no one wants to hear, because to me, the first thing I'd be like, oh, God, I got to go back and revise this thing again. Well, most about people, when they but, ask for, for feedback, want praise. Right, right. But because it's it, that's kind of instinctual and we want to be praised, right? But usually the, there's two kinds of criticism, right? There's the criticism where people are be like your, your vampires there who just kind of poke holes in everything that you say. Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go, oh, uh, well, what about that? And mm, do you have enough money? And, oh, are you really going to have enough time for this? And, and all that kind of stuff. But then there are people who go, yeah, you know, I like it, but 
but what if you did this? Right. And there's this a difference between are you really going to have enough time for this, and what are you going to do to make time for this in your life? Yeah. There's a totally different question, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, you can ask the question, you know, how can I help, or the question, what needs to happen, right? There's two different ways to ask questions that I think, and which is, by the way, what the TED, my TEDx is about. There's different ways to ask questions. Some are hole poking and some are empowering. And she, what she did was she said, look, I get the sort of the concept and you're sort of basing it around this idea, but you're trying to push the idea down my throat so much that I'm choking on it. Mm. So how do you lift it out? How do you take it? And what she said was, I want you to read the book out loud to your yourself before you hand it into the publisher read it out loud like stand at your desk and she goes it's going to suck balls but you got to do it anyway and i sat there with like the computer screen and i read my entire book from start to finish and she said any sentence that you have a hard time reading out loud you wrote the damn thing any sentence you have yeah. a hard time is going to be hard for the reader to read and so the book is eminently readable because I ended up chopping a lot the, of sentences you, in half. and yeah, All because you placed a call to a fighter pilot. Exactly. So <laughs> find a fighter pilot in your life. But, but, you know, find somebody who scares the hell out of you because they're amazing and you respect what they do and ask for their feedback and take it. Yeah, take it. It's, it's, it's going to be hard to hear. And to me, sometimes the hardest criticism is the one that you know is true. Because, I knew it. But, you I know, it. as soon as people say it, you're like, like, that's right. I, I should have done that. I should have done that. Okay. I knew it wasn't good right. enough, but I didn't yep. know how to make it great. Right. And she was able to say, look, here's the problem. And I was like, yes, I agree, but I can't find the solution. And then we spent 45 minutes on the phone where she helped me figure out the solution and then sent me on my way to make it happen. It's also a good lesson to just accept uh, input from unexpected sources because you didn't, you really, I, I presume you didn't expect any of that from her. I thought the book was done. Yeah. Like I was really proud of it. I knew it wasn't the best thing I could possibly do, but I was, you know, I kind of wrote it as this, I just want to have a book that I can sell from, you know, the back of the room stage. I didn't expect that it was going to be this sort of big idea, you know, successful bestseller, et cetera. Um, but she helped me make it that way because she didn't let me settle for whatever. It's just good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're, we're, we're way, we're up against the clock. We've, we've killed the clock. The clock is dead. Um, it's a podcast. There is no clock, but we need to say goodbye to Lars. So Lars Gassner, Auding, thank you for being here. Limitless is the name of the book. I'm not going to read the whole subtitle because uh, my mouth is tired, but go to limitlesspossibility.com or find uh, Lars' book, Limitless, on Amazon or as she says, wherever you find, find books. Did you have fun? I had a great time. Okay. Um, I would love to have you back sometime because you were saying to me that, you know, you haven't been on a lot of local podcasts. Well, there's, there's nothing could be more local than the Boston podcast. So we're delighted to have you here. Hell yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you to Lara. Thank you to U.S. Uh, Postal Service. USPS.com slash careers is where you go to find out more info about careers at the Postal Service. Thanks to our friend at Adori. Go to the App Store. Download the Adori app. A-D-O-R-I. On behalf of Lara Gassner Otting, who I've now pronounced her name correctly a few times, I thank yay me. My name is Dave. I'm just a guy from Boston. But if you're not from Boston, you must be the other guy. Enjoy the day, everybody. You must be the other guy.